You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. You've got to have effective access to broadband. And so therefore, we've got to be smart about how we deploy these federal dollars. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben shares two recent Supreme Court decisions on the state secrets privilege. I've got the story of the U.S. Senate passing cyber breach notification legislation. And later in the show, my conversation with Lauren Van Weser from Akamai on their call for robust security in the broadband rollout. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, let's jump into some stories here this week. Why don't you start things off for us? So we have two Supreme Court decisions that came down very recently dealing with the so-called state secrets privilege. Hmm. As you recall, we've talked about this privilege a number of times. So it is a common law legal privilege that the state can decide to withhold information from a court if it deems that information a threat to national security. Hmm. In some instances, uh, that means that the court would throw away the case entirely and in other cases, and most most times it's invoked, it means that that particular piece of evidence can be excluded. Hmm. Um, we've had it in the United States throughout our history. It was articulated in a 1950s uh, case called Reynolds v. United States. Okay. So there are two cases that came out this week. One of them is of more interest to us, and that is about electronic surveillance that took place back in the old days, the early 2000s in the San Diego area. Hmm. Uh, there was an FBI informant uh, who— was snooping around in the area to try and uh, suss out radical radical Islamic jihadists in Southern California. Hmm. Uh, So he went to a mosque in Irvine, California, and started talking about jihad and violence. Um, And it turns out that the actual people at this mosque were nonviolent. Not only that, but they realized that— (laughs) <laughs> they were being played by this informant, so they I'm called— imagining this, this guy ham-handedly walking into a mosque and saying, I'm here to do crimes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he seems like he was not the best informant. Right, okay. Anyway, they called law enforcement on him probably to be like, if this guy's not an informant, we have a jihadist <laughs> right, for you. Right, okay. Uh, so um, with very good reason, these individuals sued uh, the FBI and Mr. Monteith, okay. alleging— uh, Unlawful electronic surveillance. All right. This is a case that's been playing its way through the court for, you know, probably 15 years now. Wow. The broader question in the case is whether uh, the government can get this case thrown out under the state secrets privilege saying they don't want to divulge their methods of electronic surveillance and the war on terrorism. Hmm. 
The very narrow question is whether a provision in FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, uh, supersedes the state secrets privilege. Hmm. So there's a provision in that act. Um, if you want to take notes on this, it's 1806F. That, <laughs> ah, yeah. ah, yes, 1806F. Yes, uh, that one, of, one. One of my favorites. Uh, it has a nice ring to it. <laughs> so in that provision, there's a whole procedure when um, the government is looking to classify information as part of some criminal case dealing with foreign intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way the process works is the case will go uh, ex parte in camera, so in the chambers of the judge with no parties present. The judge will review the evidence to see if it presents some type of national security concern. Okay. What um, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, in, uh, which is located on the West Coast of the United States, held is that FISA supersedes the state secrets privilege. So Hmm. uh, the government can't invoke the state secrets privilege in their view because FISA already lays out a process of what to do when you're dealing with classified information. Um, That decision was appealed to the Supreme Court in a 9-0 decision, uh, which you rarely see um, on things that are even remotely controversial. Uh, the court held that the FISA provision actually does not displace the state secrets privilege. Hmm. They are separate and distinct from one another. Hmm. The reasoning, and this is in a decision by Justice Samuel uh, Alito, is that nothing in the FISA statute calls out the state secrets privilege, gives any indication that FISA supersedes the state secrets privilege. And, um, you know, FISA is concerned about restricting the government's use of evidence. That's why we have this FISA process, so that mm-hmm. they're not illeg- using illegally obtained evidence. The state secrets privilege is broad enough that, you know, sometimes it could be invoked to bar evidence that was illegally or unreasonably obtained. Mm-hmm. So the result of that means when we have some type of potentially illegal surveillance, the government can get that evidence thrown out or the case thrown out of court under the state secrets privilege regardless of how that process would work out under FISA. Hmm. So this bolsters, I think, the usefulness of the state secrets privilege for the government Hmm. Um, in cases where, you know, there might be some questions about whether they should have invoked the state secrets privilege in the first place. So does this remove a layer of oversight then because we're not going to in front of a judge in the judge's chambers to have a look at this? It, It gets thrown out before that happens? Basically, yes. So there's also a process laid out in the Reynolds case on how to deal with classified information under the state secrets privilege. Uh Basically, the government has to make some some type of preliminary showing that this is the type of information that might harm national security. And if a judge agrees with that declaration, um, he he can— exclude that evidence even without digging into the details of those allegations. Hmm. And this comes from, you know, a long-held notion emanating from Article 2 of the Constitution that the executive branch has power over national security matters. And it's not the job of the court to distrust the national security establishment when they come with this type of evidence. Hmm. Um, Of course, we know that that's not always the case. And in fact, a point I think I've made on the show is we found out about 60 years after the Reynolds case was decided that the information at issue in that case wasn't actually secretive at all. The government was trying to hide its own negligence. Uh, it was a case relating to uh, Air Force planes during the Cold War era. Huh. 
So, you know, we we know that the government doesn't always properly invoke the state secrets privilege. And with that in mind, we have this other case. Doesn't concern uh, electronic surveillance, so not as much in our wheelhouse, but it does concern the state secrets privilege. I think it's important to cover. It is the United States v. Zubadaya. Okay. So Zubadaya uh, was captured in the battlefields in Afghanistan during the early years of the war on terrorism and was held at one of those black sites. Mm. Um, that black site was later determined to be in Poland. It's been confirmed not by our government, but by basically everybody else, international amnesty organizations, nonprofits. Hmm. Um, everybody who was involved in this detention has confirmed that this black site was in, uh, was in Poland. Okay. So Zubadaya was brutally tortured um, using enhanced interrogation techniques, as we called it during the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is now a case in Polish criminal court that would basically hold the Polish government accountable to what happened to Zubadaya. Hmm. And Zubadaya wants the testimony from two CIA contractors who he alleged, he's alleging, basically tortured him hmm. at this black site. And the United States is trying to stop these individuals from testifying by invoking the state secrets privilege, saying, it would be dangerous for them even to admit the existence of this black site in Poland. That would jeopardize national security. The black site that everyone else already knows. knows it's about. true. Okay. Go. <laughs> All right. Go, uh, go on. <laughs> so the Supreme Court, in a decision by retiring Justice uh, Stephen Breyer, said that in this case, the state secrets privilege can be properly invoked. The government has made a good enough showing that even admitting the existence of this black site in Poland— would harm national security. Hmm. Um, You know, I think what most of us would say is it was already in the public domain anyway. What's the difference? Mm -hmm. What Breyer says is, you know, the government might have its reasons, even if information is public, for not themselves admitting that the site exists. Okay. There's some extra cachet that comes with it when it's the government admitting that the site exists. Basically, maybe we'd be violating some some type of bilateral agreements Mm -hmm. um, by admitting it ourselves. Uh, so it was a 6-3 decision. It was kind of bifurcated. Some justices agreed with some parts of the decision. I won't bore you with the minutia of that, except to say that there was a impassioned dissent hmm. from Justice Gorsuch uh, signed by Justice Sotomayor. So we have this cross-ideological dissent, which I just find so fascinating, hmm. probably the most conservative and the most liberal justice on the court. Hmm. It was basically a broadside against the invoca- uh, invocation of the state secrets privilege in this case, with these two justices saying, everybody knows this took place. Everybody knows the black site was in Poland. The government is just trying to avoid any determination of negligence or legal responsibility here, as they frequently do with the state secrets privilege. You know, Gorsuch flat out says you might be ashamed of the fact that you tortured this guy 20 years ago. That should not shield you from legal liability. Hmm. So it's really a remarkable uh, defense. You know, to sum up what we see in these two cases, the state secrets privilege is alive and well. Um, In the national security context, it can be used even if there is unlawful electronic surveillance. Um, But I think there's a hint now with this dissent that we have Justices who are willing to see the follies of the privilege and how it can be abused. And that might be of interest going forward as as the makeup of the court changes. What kind of oversight is there on the state secrets privilege? I mean, is 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 it does it is it one of these things where it 
it is only when it goes to a court that things get decided? Or I guess what I'm asking is, um, you know, to what degree at this point in time do we feel like state secrets privilege is used for, in good faith for what it is designed for versus being kind of a get out of jail free card? I frankly think, you know, it would be appropriate to see it as a get out of jail free card, knowing what we know about history. Hmm. There have been efforts to reform it. Um, there was a bill that was introduced every Congress, you know, that never actually went anywhere. Um it was advocated for um, by Senator Patrick Leahy, currently the most senior uh, member of the Senate, that would limit the use of the state secrets privilege to only extraordinary circumstances. Hmm. Um, in the early Obama years, Attorney General Holder tried an effort to rein in the state secrets privilege and guarantee that the government um, wouldn't abuse it. You know, it's something that then-candidate Obama criticized about the Bush administration's uh, prosecution of the war on terrorism. Of course, that all changes once you get into office. Um, <laughs> right. Now that fact, I'm the president, yeah. I have this awesome tool. <laughs> it's very useful for me. <laughs> yeah, I can keep these bad things out of court. Of course I'm going to use it. Right. Torture? What torture? There's no torture. Yeah, I don't want to be held liable. Uh, so the Obama administration, just like every administration before them, made use of the state secrets privilege to its fullest. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we know it continued in, in the Trump administration because it was Secretary or then CIA Director Mike Pompeo who invoked it in the Zubadaya case. Hmm. Um, it, has, it has to be invoked by the head of the relevant department. Okay. Um, so there, there is oversight in the sense that, you know, this is something that Congress has its eye on. We've talked about Executive Order 12333 where maybe that's kind of out of the— oversight purview to a certain extent from congressional committees. That's not the case here. Hmm. Um, you know, we we have pretty good notice when the state secrets privilege is being invoked. Um, but the Supreme Court and judges across the country have given great deference to the government when they invoke this privilege. Hmm. Um, and given what we know about history and Gorsuch and his dissent talks about what happens with the Reynolds case— I think more skepticism really does need to be applied in those circumstances. Hmm. All right. Well, that's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Sorry, I bombarded you with uh, a lot of information. Oh, I'm going to be thinking about this all day now, Ben. Thanks. I know. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, if you want to immerse yourself in it, um, the Supreme Court website obviously posts all their opinions. And yeah. uh, I particularly recommend the Gorsuch Sotomayor dissent and the Zubadaya opinion. Mm -hmm. um, How is, interesting that it's, you know, as you say, very, very different uh, uh, points of view, typically from those two justices. Yeah, and just, they found this area of common ground. I think it's really meaningful that it came from the two of them. Yeah. All right, well, we will have links to those stories in the show notes. Uh, my story this week comes from the Washington Post. This is a story written by Joseph Marks, uh, and it's titled, The Senate is Finally Passing Big Cyber Bills. <laughs> Hallelujah, right? <laughs> so uh, this was uh, the day of uh, President Biden's State of the Union uh, address. Uh, the Senate passed a bill that uh, is um, a measure that enhances cyber reporting requirements. And this is something that's been called for for a while. Uh, it, it They attempted to pass this, I guess, last year, but it did not pass. And this year, it seems as though things have changed. Uh, I think perhaps the situation in Ukraine has made folks a little more focused on cyber um, and the part it plays in national security and defense and so on and so forth. 
Um, so this is going to put rules on uh, how organizations must report breaches, uh, puts a timeline on them. Um, also in the bill uh, updates uh, some rules for how government agencies manage their information security um, and how they manage uh, cybersecurity of cloud computing systems in federal agencies, some things like that. Um, this is not yet passed the House, but uh, this article seems to think that uh, there's a good chance that it will do so. Um, what do you think of this, Ben? It's it's a huge step. I think it's a big deal. We haven't seen a major piece of cybersecurity-related legislation in several years. As you mentioned, this particular proposal failed last year due to kind of parochial reasons having to do with log-rolling this provision into a larger bill. Um, but there's pretty much unanimous support for this approach in the Senate. It's a bipartisan bill. Um, Senator Gary Peters, a Democrat of Michigan, and, and Rob Portman, a Republican of Ohio, I think there is certainly new urgency sparked by what's happening in Ukraine and this prospect that, you know, this has almost become cliche at this point, but that we're in line for some type of, you know, cyber September 11th. I think that's certainly true for when we're talking about critical infrastructure. Um, You know, cybersecurity threats can seem abstract. Mm -hmm. Um, Even things like ransomware, if you're not attacked by ransomware, you know, it, it not that many people in some circumstances really feel the kinetic effects. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about something like critical infrastructure and we're knocking out power grids or water systems or sewage systems, that becomes really scary. And nothing inspires legislation legislators to move more than the concept of fear. Um, and <laughs> I, I think that's been proven uh, throughout fear, history. Fear, but primarily fear of not being reelected, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but I also think there is a real genuine concern right now that, you know, we're at the first stage of this conflict yeah. with Ukraine, and the next stage might be more of the cyber attack stage uh, to, to um, their engagement. Yeah. And I think this is members of Congress recognizing that threat. Um, it does seem like it has good prospects in the House. Uh, so certainly this is something that the, the president would sign if he reached his desk. So I think the prospects are quite good. And I think it's encouraging to see that legislators from both sides of the aisle are are willing to compromise on something like this. It is yeah. just a notification bill. I mean, as important as that is, it's not as substantive as other pieces of legislation that, you know— mandate minimum security standards. We we do those types of things for federal agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't yet done that um, at a broader level. Uh, but this is certainly a, a first step. Um, and as this article says, it is sort of a sea change uh, in, in that it applies to all different types of critical infrastructure firms. I just yeah. we haven't seen something this this broad um, in the past. Yeah, the the article points out that uh, you know this is going to give organizations like CISA uh, better insight onto exactly what the what's happening across the country in terms of the attacks that are happening. Um, some critics of the bill say that um, it it has uh, terminology in it. They they refer to a substantial cyber incident. And that that is a little vague. Right. Um, and also they're saying that a 72-hour deadline for reports uh, may be too quick to share useful information. Um, I, I that, You know, that's a complaint I've seen when this has come up in the past, that people say you don't want to have the reporting be too quick because the incident responders are still working out exactly what happened 
sometimes if any something happened. Right. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I think, um, you know, perhaps the the 72-hour deadline could include, hey, something's happening. Something happened. Right. We're still working on it. <laughs> but We don't know, have all the information right. yet. Right. We there's... know that, but that, that clock is running. We acknowledge that clock is running. So we're putting you on notice that we think something has happened. So, you know, let, let it be that. Um, I think that's fair. I mean, you also, you have to draw the line somewhere. Um, Right. You know, if you don't give a deadline, then there's not going to be any incentive for them to report. Um, You know, we have already shielded them from liability for reporting. That's what we did in 2015. But, you know, you need to have some type of um, temporal deadline in there. So I think 72 hours is as reasonable as anything else. Um, Hopefully, in, in most circumstances, you would have moved beyond the emergency response phase at mm-hmm. that point, mm-hmm. um, and you're moving more towards the recovery phase. Yeah. And I think that's the general thinking behind 72 hours. It's not, you know, when there are still metaphorical bodies on the ground, so <laughs> right. to speak. <laughs> right, right, right. No, I, I think I think this is a good thing. I, I think uh, this is a move in the right direction to have this kind of reporting um, I, I, I think good things will come of this. So I tend to, tend to agree with this. So I, I hope it passes the house. All right. Uh, that is my story this week. We will have a link to that in the show notes as well. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Lauren Van Weiser. She is the VP of Public Policy from Akamai. And we're discussing uh, the call for robust security in the broadband rollout. Here's my conversation with Lauren Van Weiser. The National Telecommunications and Information Administration is the agency that advises the president on telecommunications, internet, and broadband policy writ large. It sits in the Department of Commerce, uh, so it's an agency contained within the Department of Commerce. I see. And and this is an advisory organization? Do they have any regulatory function there? Oh, yes, absolutely. So they've got, obviously, a a key role in broadband deployment, broadband policy, but also they manage the federal uh, airwaves for spectrum, so radio spectrum use as well. I see. So they have put out a request for comment on uh, implementation of some of the broadband funding programs that have been established in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act from the Biden administration. 
I know you and your colleagues at Akamai uh, have some opinions on this uh, and see this as uh, an opportunity here. Oh, absolutely. So um, what's fun for me is being able to engage on this issue is really a marriage of my background in both broadband policy, but also cybersecurity. It's really important that we work to get more broadband services out to those who need them, and that's both unserved and underserved populations. And it's really important that we're smart about how we do that. And right now, we've got an unprecedented opportunity with these broadband funds to do just that. And how do you suppose this is going to play out? I mean, the the folks who are keeping an eye on this, how do they suspect this rollout, the ability to to take broadband to people who are underserved, what are the most likely ways that that's going to happen? Well, first off, just from a quick process overview perspective, the NTIA is going to come up with some broad criteria for these broadband deployments. And that's why it was seeking public comment on, on the broadband infrastructure deployments. And then it will provide guidance to the states who will actually have the on-the-ground implementation in their respective states. And so it's going to be uh, both a federal process and ultimately a state-level process to help push these deployments out to where they need to be. So the NTIA is going to set broad criteria for uh, these federal funds, and then the states are going to do some criteria and prioritizing on their end, and the states are actually going to be pushing that money out. And so what are some of the recommendations that you all have made here? Yes, it's really important. I think the pandemic was very instructive in terms of accelerating services, online services. So more and more people need to have trust in those services. And so these broadband deployments really need to have cybersecurity baked in from the front end. And that sounds, you know, especially to your audience who's so savvy in cybersecurity, like, oh, wow, you know, this is this is just like what we say. Don't bolt on cybersecurity solutions, imbue them into the DNA. But in the broadband infrastructure space and policy, that is new. Uh, cybersecurity really hadn't been front and center. And you know, what the pandemic taught us was you've got to ensure there's a foundation for trust in these online services. If I'm doing banking, if I'm doing healthcare. And so we need to be thinking about cybersecurity from the front end, particularly with greenfield deployments. So people getting access to broadband services for the first time and wanting to encourage businesses to develop in those places really need access to baseline cybersecurity services. So that's how we've weighed in as Akamai in this formal proceeding. NTIA, please put these in on the front end. Think about these issues. It's becoming increasingly important with the types of services consumers are using online, like healthcare, banking, et cetera. It's really important that they be able to have a level of trust in their online experience. I think everyone uh, would agree with that as, as an aspirational goal. Do you have any um, practical elements that you could share, actual examples of how something like this could be implemented? 
Um, absolutely. So uh, just uh, traditionally in the broadband space, the FCC NTIA looked at issues like just access. Do I have access to the to the broadband pipe? And also speed. What are the speeds that are available to me? And so mm-hmm. this would be asking for best practices to be referenced in. You know, maybe it's NIST guidelines, maybe it's other guidelines, so that, for example, anti-phishing and, and malware protection could be baked into the services that are deployed to people receiving broadband services for the first time. Yeah, I mean, that really is a, a kind of a, a change in the way we approach this, right? I mean, I think most people have thought about those things and relied on, I don't know, downstream service provider. You know, I tr- if I have Gmail, I trust them to do my spam filtering and so on. But what we're advocating here is having more of those sorts of things really baked into the fundamental level of the network access? Both, actually. Fundamental level of network access, but also, you know, some of the broadband won't be for pipes themselves. Some of the funds will be for actual devices, et cetera. So it's thinking about making sure that the folks we're bringing online for the first time have access to those services. What we want is for businesses in rural places to be able to grow and develop access to the same level of digital experience and confidence in that digital experience as as those in metropolitan areas. Has there been any pushback uh, against this sort of notion? Are there providers or installers who say this is going to be a regulatory burden that they're not prepared to take on? Well, there was generally support for our position and the comments that were filed, just so folks know, these comments are, are public. The proceeding is public, so you can have access to all of those comments. So there's there's general support. I think, as with anything else, there's a tension between you know, how prescriptive you are as a regulatory body and, you know, how much flexibility there is in terms of deployments on the ground. And so you want to have flexibility in terms of the actual technologies that are used to accommodate um, and tailor to local situations, but at the same time saying that, as, as NTIA is saying that, you know, cybersecurity needs to be baked in from the front end is a big change from the way it's been done historically. So I think there is a balancing act. The way you're alluding to it is is certainly the case, but it's important that we don't simply measure access to broadband as it's been done historically as geographic access. You've got to have effective access to broadband. And so therefore we've got to be smart about how we deploy these federal dollars. And what sort of timeline are we on from this point forward? When do you suppose we'll actually see communities seeing the benefits of this? You know, I would hope soon. It's going to take some time. Uh, You know, when you have a public process like this, I would expect NTIA to be issuing guidelines in the spring. States need to come up with their individual plans. Obviously, they know the areas that they need to target places where they don't have enough deployments now. And so I would expect, you know, maybe a year and a half to two years uh, timeline before if if I'm in a community that doesn't have broadband today, then I might possibly receive it. And I think part of it depends on the nature of the technology. 
Certainly, certain wireless technologies are much faster in terms of implementation than than other types of technologies, you know, where you have to go dig and, you know, put fiber into the ground. And so I think, you know, the timeline also depends on the nature of the technologies that are deployed. Are we at the point where there's um, an issue with the fact that, as you mentioned, you know, a public process like this takes a certain amount of time, and yet the rate of change in technology is fast and and always seems to be accelerating. Is it possible those two things get a little out of sync? Well, you know, sometimes that happens, but I think because technology, and it's known that technology keeps evolving, that it's really important to have forward interoperability. So even if I were thinking, I mean, I've been in the broadband area, but I hate to even say it. And, you know, we were talking 2G and now we're talking, you know, beyond 5G. And so the key is ensuring that technologies are deployed in a forward, forwardly interoperable way. So that if I, if the technologies have changed, I can deploy the newest at the time that I'm doing the actual deployment. So I think it's important that the plans that the states develop have flexibility for that and that there's a general awareness of, you know, let's go this way because we can, you know, whatever generation of technology we can deploy the next if we need to. So I think it's important consideration to keep in mind, but it's something that isn't new to um you know, the proceeding we're in now. All right, Ben, what do you think? I have sort of a dull, but I think interesting angle on this. Yeah. Um, this is a really good time. If you have any interest in um, the rollout of broadband as part of the infrastructure bill, to get involved with the process that she talks about with the NTIA forming these regulations. Hmm. I mean, that's uh, something that's done through notice and comment. So they will, um, the NTIA will promulgate uh, an initial recommendation. There will be this period for public comment. And the nature of it is that the only people who comment are either crazy old people with nothing else to do who go on to the <laughs> online federal register. Just sitting at their public library, banging out uh, angry, angry comments. With the, yeah, it's I, basically I, get I off get my lawn. I mean, yeah. if you go through a file of public comments, that ends up making, you know, depending on the regulation, a pretty good, uh, you know, percentage of the comments. Right. Most of the other comments come from industry groups and people who have the type of resources who you can, you know, have the the junior level staffer looking at the federal register every day, trying to cull through regulations. Yeah. Um, for smaller firms and organizations who don't have the, those resources, they just don't, you know, they don't get the notices and they don't have the opportunity to comment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what's great about hopefully this interview is that everybody's aware that this is happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to, you know, make your voice heard, that that's something, that's a really good way to do so. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Lauren Van Weser from Akamai for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go. 
helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>